As you're finding your seat, you can be finding your way to Acts chapter 9 one more time. Well, actually two more times. You can find your way to Acts chapter 9 again this morning. Um, now before we get into our study, I, I do just on behalf of all the, the pastors, I, I want to say thank you for the love that you showed us this past week. You might not even know this, but um, on Tuesday some of the deacons' wives put together an appreciation lunch for us, and many of you uh, participated in that by sending thank you notes and gift cards and that sort of thing, and it was all uh, very nice. So thank you so much um, on behalf of the, the whole staff. Uh, for those of you that participated in that, and, and even if you didn't or weren't able, um, and we still feel your love. We're grateful to be able to serve alongside uh, you here at FBC. It's our joy to do that. Um, so thank you for that. I do encourage you to also come back out tonight. So our prayer night's always an important night. Uh, our focus will be Hungary tonight. And as I told you last week, we'll be giving you an update on the Hungary Pastors Training Fellowship and the offering that we received for that. So if you're interested in, in that information, come back out tonight. And then, you know, if you can, if you can get into Wedstrong, I encourage you to do that. This is the, this is the end. This is the last week uh, that you can sign up. It obviously kicks off Thursday night, but there's still some spots. I talked to Justin uh, last week, and, and there's still some spots there. At the, I think they have a, even an overflow hotel, but I think there are still some rooms available in the main hotel. So if you get in quick enough, uh, you can get in there. So there's a big group of us going to be there. Come join us. Um, man, I think I think all, all the pastors are going to be there, I think, and, and um, a, a big group. So come join us. We'll have, have a great time there and get some, get some good teaching. Uh, but this morning, we're back in Acts chapter 9. We're methodically moving through what, what is this very important chapter in the, in the book of Acts and, and also just in the grand scheme of, of church history, and that's because the first 30 verses in particular pertain to the conversion and early ministry years of Saul of Tarsus, who most of us know here later becomes the Apostle Paul. And today we're going to finish up that story, and, and then the Acts narrative will shift away from Saul for the time being. The, the focus will actually go back to Peter for a little bit before it shifts back to Saul eventually for good uh, for the remainder of the book. But that's that shifting of focus is all just part and parcel of this transition phase we are in, in the midst of this transition book. But where we ended last Sunday was Saul being smuggled out of Damascus as the Jews there were trying to kill him. And we're going to pick up the story today with Saul back in Jerusalem for the first time since his conversion, some three years earlier. And Jerusalem had been his home. It was still the center of, of the work of the apostles. We've seen, you know, starting in, in, in chapter 8, the, the work go out into Samaria and, and, and beyond. Uh, but the center of the apostles is still in Jerusalem. And, 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 and so it makes sense uh, for him to head back there. And there are a lot of parallels, actually, between his early ministry in Damascus and then the time he spends in Jerusalem, his time at Jerusalem in Acts 9 doesn't last near as long. It's actually much shorter than the time he spent in Damascus. But he boldly preached Christ in both cities. He also, you know, gets ran out of town uh, in both cities by those who wanted to kill him. So there are those type of parallels. And even the initial reactions are the same, probably not unsurprisingly. In Damascus, it was the re reaction of Ananias, who expressed some concern to the Lord, that the Lord was sending him to talk to Saul and and what we're going to see today is that initially, the disciples in Jerusalem didn't exactly welcome Saul with open arms. And we're going to discuss that in, in some detail. But, but, but Saul is now in the action and he's on the move as God had planned for him from the very beginning. And we've followed this process. We followed him from his conversion, saw the transformation that took place in his life, and we looked at the time between the transformation and action, and then last Sunday we looked at some of the behind-the-scenes work he did to get himself prepared for the ministry, and then he got to work. And the Bible says he straightway started preaching Christ. But when he shows up in Jerusalem, you have to understand the, the, the context. Just put yourself in, in the position here. The ministry of the apostles and that early church have been going on fine without Saul for, for what was three years now. And we think of Paul as some ministry hero, and he absolutely is. But that was not the case 
at the time of Acts 9.26, where we're going to pick up the story this morning. He hadn't really done anything yet of note. He hadn't been on any missionary journeys. He hadn't written any of his epistles. He hadn't even spent any time in prison. That's all to come later. So he wasn't the hero and the great Christian that we know him as today. He was just another guy. In fact, he was just another guy that had killed Christians or had, had killed believers of Jesus before his conversion. So his entry into Jerusalem was treated with some caution. And it's okay. It's, it's even appropriate. It's actually going to teach us some vital keys to ministry success this morning. We're going to learn from those disciples and, and some of the actions they took because they were smart. And they approached Saul and the situation in a godly way to maximize the success of their ministry in that city as they trusted the Lord. And they didn't act rashly or foolishly, and that's just a good biblical principle for life as well as for ministry. Proverbs 21.5 says, The thoughts of the diligent tend only to plentiousness, but of everyone that is hasty, only to want. You see, God has given us today the Holy Spirit. He's given us the wisdom of his mind through his word, and he's given us other godly believers to bounce things off of. And so as we make ministry decisions or even decisions for our personal life, we have every resource we need to be successful. Now, unfortunately, as believers, we don't always act on those resources. Sometimes we act hastily on our own, and, and, and that is just asking for trouble. Those situations rarely end well. Proverbs 20, verse 21 says, An inheritance may be gotten hastily at the beginning, but the end thereof shall not be blessed. And that's what we want to avoid in ministry and in our personal life. So at some level, wisdom and caution go hand in hand. And that's what we're going to see this morning. We're going to learn from those Jerusalem disciples and see their godly wisdom as we analyze the keys to ministry success that they implemented in what could have been a pretty difficult situation to handle. So let's go ahead and take a look at our passage this morning. Saul smuggled out of Damascus in a basket in Acts 9.25. We'll pick up the story of verse 26 and read down through verse 31. Acts 9.26, the Bible says, And when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed to join himself to the disciples. But they were all afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way. And he had spoken to him, and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. And, when, and he was with them coming in and going out at Jerusalem. And he spake boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus, and disputed against the Grecians. But they went about to slay him, which when the brethren knew, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him forth to Tarsus. Then, the churches, then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost were multiplied. All right, let's pray, ask the Lord to, to teach us something in our life this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we're so thankful to be here as a body today, as a, as a family of believers. And, and, and Lord, as, as even Craig was mentioning, in the midst of, of difficult circumstances going on in, in our community, Lord, we're, we're so thankful for you and, and the hope that you bring um, to every situation and to every person. And so I pray that you do that. Um, today. I pray that, that if there's anybody here that doesn't know you as Savior, Lord, you'll bring that hope of eternal life to them today. And I pray that you use this in, in our life to, to bring us closer to you, to teach us something that we need to apply in, in our life and in our church, in our ministry. And Lord, you be glorified through it. I pray that everything that is said is true to your word and that you'd, you'd be honored uh, by our, our uh, offering to you of, uh, of our worship and our attentiveness to your word this morning. Lord, we love you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is a very interesting end of this story of, of Saul's conversion and his, his, th his three plus years you know, of ministry there in Damascus at the beginning of his, of his Christian life, so to speak. And again, as we just read, when he gets to Jerusalem for the first time after his conversion, he's, he's, not, initially, he's not initially welcomed. But their caution is not unwarranted and actually gives us the first key to ministry success. And that is we need to prove the workers. We need to prove the workers. You see, when Saul came to town, to that group of disciples, he wasn't proven. Now, they definitely knew who he was. 
where they didn't know him and they didn't trust him. And they were still working off the info that he was a persecutor and a murderer of the disciples of Christ. And as I've already mentioned a couple times this morning as we went through and, and I showed you last week, it had been three years since Saul's conversion. So even though they hadn't heard of any persecution or killings by Saul during that time period, they still thought he might be an enemy spy. According to verse 26, they were still afraid of him, and they did not believe that he was a disciple. Look there again. And when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed to join himself to the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. So he wasn't accepted into their ministry. He wasn't accepted as one of them. The Bible says he essayed to join himself to them. Essay just means attempted or tried. He tested out the waters. He was trying. And the phrase join himself has a very intimate connotation. It means to glue or to cleave. So it wasn't that he just wanted some friends that he just wanted to hang out with for a little bit. He didn't, you know, want some guys that he could, you know, watch a movie with occasionally. No, he wanted a much deeper relationship than that. He didn't want anything superficial. For Saul, it was spiritual. And his desire was to minister together with the disciples, the apostles in Jerusalem at every level. This was the same command that the Lord instructed Philip to do with the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8.29. And the Spirit said unto Philip, go near and join thyself to this chariot. It's the same command, join themselves. That's what, that's what Saul wanted to do. He wanted to join himself with the disciples and the apostles. We see the exact same Greek and English word in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 16 and 17. It says, what? Know ye not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body? For two saith he shall be one flesh, but he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. It's the same, it's the same word used there. So you can see the intimate nature attached to the word, and that's what Saul wanted. He wanted an intimate partnership in ministry. But when he came to town, those guys were like, hold up, man. I don't, I don't care what you're saying right now. I don't care what you say about yourself. I don't believe you. I need more proof than your words. Now, when it comes to having and, and maintaining a successful ministry, certainly anything like the, the size of our church, we need more proof than words. We need to apply that same principle. We need to prove out the workers of the ministry. As 1 Thessalonians 5.21 says, we are to prove all things and hold fast that which is good. And all things includes the workers of the ministry. But listen, it goes even deeper than that. Because this is something you can and should apply to your own life. You shouldn't even take your own word for how you're living. Because you lie to yourself. I lie to myself. So, and I, and I put this on your outline sheet. Whatever you are willing to say about your spirituality should be provable. Whatever you say, should, you should be able to prove it. And that's biblical, but that's exactly what Paul told the Corinthians in, in 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 5. He said, examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye, not, know ye not your own selves how that Jesus Christ is in you except you be reprobates? He said, well, why don't you examine what's in you? Why don't you prove yourself out? So the answer is to look within with honesty, to be a doer of the word and not just a hearer or a talker. Talk is cheap unless what you do backs up your words. So James 1 says, verses 22 through 24, but be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. Listen to these next four words. Deceiving your own selves. We can deceive ourselves by, by, by in, a, in our own words. For if any be a hearer of the word, not a doer, he's like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he is. And listen, it's so easy to be deceived and forget what manner of man or woman we really are. And we lie to ourselves, and we convince ourselves that everything's okay. No. Why don't you take the next step and prove that everything is okay? And that's true in ministry as well. The disciples of Jesus here in Jerusalem, they wouldn't take Saul at his word. And listen, just put yourself in their position. He killed their brothers. 
He had dragged their brothers and sisters into jail. He had made them blaspheme the name of Christ. And just because things had been quiet for three years, that wasn't enough for them. Many of them had walked with Judas for over three years before he did what he did and showed who he really was as an enemy spy. And I believe this is part of the reason why Saul didn't go to Jerusalem any earlier than he did. And he waited those three years. Now, like we talked about last week, it was primarily Saul's time of preparation for all that God had planned for him. He received revelation from God and and what he was to preach, what he was to write about, the fullness of the gospel of grace. And then he started serving the Lord and preaching about Jesus and gaining that experience. We talked about all that last week. But I believe that God also used that time to soften the hearts of the Jerusalem disciples, to prepare them to accept Saul. He'd done too much damage to be welcomed with open arms right away. It took some time. Because even after three years, when he first shows up, they're still cautious. So for the disciples to accept Saul, they needed to prove him. And how'd they do that? How'd they prove him out? What did that process look like? What we see in Scripture is that they proved him two ways. First of all, they did it through fellowship. That's point A, through fellowship. Saul had someone step up and vouch for him, and that was Barnabas. Look at verse 27. So the, the disciples aren't accepting him, but verse 27, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, the guys that could make the decisions. And declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way, and that he had spoken to him, and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So Barnabas knew of Saul's testimony, what God had done in his life. And he knew about Saul's actions, that he was boldly preaching in the name of Jesus. And because of that fellowship that Barnabas and Saul had, there was someone who could speak for him. Because again, Saul speaking for himself wasn't enough. That that wasn't going to get it done. And Barnabas is a very interesting character in Scripture. Later in Acts, we're going to see he and and Saul be sent out as the the first missionaries uh, by the church in the New Testament. Now, later their relationship is going to sour, and and they're going to split as ministry partners. But at this point, Barnabas is in Saul's corner. And and that is who he was. We were introduced to him back in chapter 4. And and learned there that he had been given a name that that means the son of consolation. Acts 4.36, And Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite and of the country of Cyprus. So by his nature, he was consoling. It meant to be a comforter, an exhorter, an encourager. He was a reconciler. That was his heart. And that was the role he was playing here between Saul and the disciples. And Saul actually paid it forward many years later in ministry because he did the same thing for a guy named Onesimus. And maybe you know about Onesimus, but Onesimus had wronged Philemon earlier in his life, but it had apparently gotten saved and was a help to Paul. And so Paul wrote the letter to Philemon asking him to forgive Onesimus and receive him back. And in verses 17 and 18 of that epistle, Paul says, If thou count me therefore a partner, receive him as myself. If he hath wronged thee or oweth thee aught, put that on mine account. And there's beautiful, beautiful pictures in there. But, but you see, Paul understood the benefit of, of vouching for someone because, because he had personally benefit, benefited from it. So he knew the value of fellowship in that manner. But listen, it's, it's not something to take lightly. It's actually the very thing that then later caused the contention between Saul and Barnabas. Because Barnabas stood up for John Mark, and Paul wasn't going to have it. And it caused their, their separation. We'll get to that when we get into chapter 15. So it's, it's not to be taken lightly, because it caused a rift between them, and because law, Paul later wrote about the danger of a wrong fellowship and the necessity of proving in Ephesians 5, verses 6 through 11. He said, let, let no man deceive you with vain words. For because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be ye not therefore partakers with them. For ye were sometimes darkness, but now ye are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. 
You see, again, this is an area in which we're all subject to deception. That's why proving is necessary. But when you've proved it out personally, okay, well, then you can stand in fellowship with and for another brother or sister in Christ. And, and we can't know with certainty from Scripture whether Philemon listened to Paul and received back Onesimus. But we do know that the disciples at least initially listened to Barnabas here in, in Acts chapter 9. This was the first step of proving Saul. It wasn't just Saul's word alone anymore. And God uses the people he puts in our lives to help us through those situations. And we should view that and we should view them providentially. They're part of the equation and how God works in our individual lives or a church's life. And so that's where it starts. But the disciples didn't only take Barnabas' word, not, not alone. So they wouldn't take Saul's word. So they take Barnabas' word, but then they take another step to prove out Saul. And that was through faithfulness. So they proved him through fellowship and his relationship with Barnabas. Second, they proved him through faithfulness. They let him join them, but they washed him. Look at the wording of verse 28. And he was with them, coming in and going out at Jerusalem. And he spake boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Grecians, but they went about to slay him. And the Bible says that he was with them, coming in and going out at Jerusalem. They didn't leave him on his own to do his own thing. No, they stayed with him. Because by being with him, they got to see exactly what he did and, and what he was saying and how he was acting. They personally witnessed him then speak boldly in the name of Jesus. And this is also part of how you prove someone. You watch them over time. You see how they react to certain different situations. And back to our theme this morning, this is vital to the success of a ministry or the failure of a ministry. Because you don't want just anybody representing you if you can't trust what they are going to say or do. You want to see them in action. This is how you figure out who are the up-and-coming leaders in a church, for example. You don't just let anyone lead. One of the qualifications of a bishop is that they are proven, 1 Timothy 3, 6, as not a novice, as we're going through the qualifications, not a novice. Thus being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. It can't be someone new to the faith or without experience. That's ridiculous. And listen, even the world knows that. Our entire culture and workforce operate on that premise. And the only way to ensure that someone is not a novice is to be with them, listen to this, in the coming in and going out of ministry. During the times of action, and in action, when they are on and, and active in ministry, and when they're off, and when it's behind the scenes. And so that takes an investment to see someone at that level in the coming in and the going out. And during all that time, you're looking for faithfulness. Faithfulness first, primarily, obviously, to the Lord. Faithfulness to the church. Faithfulness to you if you're over them in the Lord. That's how God designed this proving process. And that brings us to our second key to ministry success. And that is you need to be sure and protect the work. You need to protect the work. And first, you protect the work by proving the workers. The entire last point. And so since it was our last point, I won't belabor it. It's obviously part of the protection process. You don't want dangerous wolves to enter the flock. And that's possible if you don't prove people out. Paul knew the danger of that. He warned the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 30. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. And Paul's just emphasizing the importance of there. Man, don't, don't mess this up. This is Christ's church. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. And so there's a, there's a danger there. That's why we, we prove people out, because we don't want the wolves to come in and, and devour the flock. But what we see in our text is that the disciples in Jerusalem took an extra step to move Saul out of the city in order to protect the work. Now, of course, 
it was to protect Saul too. But that wasn't the only reason. Look, look at our story again. Pay attention to the wording. Pick it up in verse 29. And he, Saul, spake boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Grecians. But they went about to slay him. Which when the brethren knew, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him forth to Tarsus. Then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost were multiplied. So back in Jerusalem, Saul goes out preaching with the disciples. And the Grecians, or we talked about them earlier, but the Greek-speaking Jews would have originally lived outside of Judea. Now they're in Jerusalem. They didn't like Saul's method. They didn't like his message. He disputed with them. They couldn't beat him in an argument, so they decided to kill him. You know, just a natural progression there. No overreaction at all. But, but this shouldn't come as a, as a big surprise. The Grecians were the ones causing problems in the church with their murmuring in Acts chapter 6. Acts 6.1 says, And in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. So the Grecians were, were troublemakers everywhere we found them. Now maybe they had a legitimate complaint there. We talked about that when we went through Acts chapter 6. But, but, the, but murmuring, whether, whether the complaint was legitimate or not, murmuring is never legitimate. It's never painted in a positive light in Scripture. And they were murmuring. So the Grecians were troublemakers everywhere we find them. But when the disciples found out that Saul was causing you know, some of those haters to come out, they sent him away. And like I said earlier, of course they were doing it to protect him, to protect Saul. And beyond that, it was actually part of God's plan to get Saul where he wanted him to be. God's providence was at work in this situation. In fact, God had told Saul that he shouldn't hang out in Jerusalem very long because they weren't going to receive him. And he had different plans for him. We learn about that when Paul is giving his testimony in Acts 22. Starting in verse 17 of Acts 22, he said, And it came to pass that when I was come again to Jerusalem, even while I prayed in the temple, I was in trance, and I saw him saying unto me, Make haste and get thee quickly out of Jerusalem, for they will not receive thy testimony concerning me. And I said, Lord, they know that I am prisoned and beaten every synagogue, them that believed on thee. And when the blood of the martyr Stephen was shed, I was also standing by and consenting unto his death and kept the raiment of them that slew him. And he said unto me, Depart, for I will send thee far hence unto the Gentiles. You see, God knew that Saul was going to be prone to stay in Jerusalem. It was his home. It was a place he loved. But God had other plans. So as he, as he has throughout this book, God used persecution to, to spread the gospel, so to speak. And Acts 22:21 was God's plan for Saul all along. He was going to be sent to the uttermost, far hence, unto the Gentiles. So this points to something bigger for us, which is God's providence has eyes and is always at work behind the scenes. God's providence has eyes and is always at work behind the scenes. But listen, again, put yourself in the disciples' shoes. They didn't know that. They didn't know all of God's plans for Saul at this time. The Lord told Ananias, but he didn't tell anyone else that we know of in Acts chapter 9. And so when they sent Saul to Caesarea and then on to Tarsus, they were doing it to protect him and to protect the work of the ministry. Because as soon as they sent him away, the churches had rest. That's what verse 31 tells us. Then, after they sent him away, then the churches had rest. It was Saul's presence and Saul's ministry that was bringing the heat. And they'd been ministering for three years without him, doing just fine. And if Saul stayed, he was going to take all of them down with him. He was going to get killed. And he was going to take the rest of them down with him. And the work would have been halted. And they didn't want that to happen. And neither should we. So we should always do what we can to protect the work of the ministry. And of course, at the end of the day, we trust the Lord. It's the Lord's church. And he can protect us. But as leaders, we do have a responsibility and a role to play in that as well. So to that end, everything we do in this church is for now and the future. We're intentional in the training of new leaders to carry on the work of the Lord and to make sure it's not wolves who are leading it. And it's guys with our DNA, so it's protected. And so to that end, we use the ministry to build men in the right way. We don't use men to build the ministry because we're not trying to build our own kingdom. 
We want to build men because that is what actually protects the work. Godly men with the right understanding of Scripture. But listen, the truth is, it is the work. It is God's agenda that needs to continually move forward. That's what goes beyond us. Men and women come and go. And we're all very important to the Lord, and we're all very important to the work in that moment. God uses people. But the mission is ultimately what this life is about. And the mission is so much bigger than me, and it's so much bigger than you. I mean, that's, you know, that's what I'm saying. We're like, what we do here is to, is to train the next generation. This church has been around 165 years. Men and women have come and gone. It's God's agenda that has to move forward. It's the mission that we can't lose focus of. So we train men to protect that work so that God's agenda in God's way goes forward. And if Saul had to go for the work to not be hindered in Jerusalem, then Saul had to go. And he understood it. Again, God had plans for Saul that the disciples didn't even know about. So God's hand was on Saul departing. It was part of his providence. It was certainly about the mission and revelation that, that Saul had received directly from the Lord. But don't miss that it was also about the disciples and the Lord protecting the church. Listen, listen, Jesus set that precedent for us as the good shepherd. John 10, verses 11 through 13, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. But he that is a hireling and not the shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, seeth the wolf coming and leaveth the sheep and fleeth. And the wolf catcheth them and scattereth the sheep. The hireling fleeth, because he's a hireling, and careth not for the sheep. And obviously Saul wasn't a wolf. Saul himself wasn't the danger to the church. The wolves in an Acts chapter 9 context were the Grecians. But Saul's presence was causing problems. And the Lord was about protecting what is his, and that's what a good shepherd does. And it wasn't until Saul departed that the churches had rest or peace. It was then. That's what verse 31 says. And it's so interesting because all the churches had rest, even the ones outside of Jerusalem. It included all the churches in Judea and in Galilee and in Samaria. And they were all edified and built up and multiplied. God was doing a great work, partly because Saul was moved out of the way. Out of the way of those he riled up and out of the way of those he had previously persecuted before his conversion. So Saul is such an interesting character in all this. Because it seems at this time in history, he was the primary source of persecution. It all centered around him. He was the one leading the charge. And then when he was converted to Christ, he was the one that was getting the heat, that was getting the tension. And it's, it's, it's just so interesting and it's so weird in many ways and, and could have been very discouraging for Saul. I want you to consider this situation from Saul's perspective for a moment. So we've considered it from the disciples' perspective. I want to consider it from Saul's perspective for a moment. I mean, first of all, he had to feel lonely when the disciples didn't want him to join them, right? He had just got ran out of Damascus, and now he comes to Jerusalem, and they're like, hold on, we don't want you here. We don't believe you. That couldn't have felt great. He had to feel sad when it was time for him to move away from Jerusalem. Like I told you, that was a city that he loved. He always desired to get back. Ultimately, he does get back, which leads to his imprisonment. We'll see that later in the study. But I'm, I mention all that to commend Saul. Because he was human, those situations could not have felt good for him. And there had to be times of hurt and times of discouragement. But we don't see anywhere here in this story where he complained. Or, or in Acts 22 or Acts 26, the other times that the story is recounted. I think he understood all of it. I think he understood the proving and the protecting and that they were both necessary. So Saul didn't cause a problem for the church there. So he did what he needed to do so that God could get glory. And boy, did he. God certainly got glory. The church was edified. The church was multiplied. And because Saul had this attitude and was willing to do whatever the Lord asked of him, God used Saul as Paul probably more than any other Christian in history. Because God's providence was at work and the plan was, for, was never for him to stay in Jerusalem. 
but he had to be willing to accept that. He had to be willing to be obedient to that. And it's all just amazing to consider, especially in the context of his beginning here in Acts chapter 9. And that brings us to our final key to ministry success this morning. Because if we just follow the Lord to do what he asks of us, the Lord's going to take care of everything. We can trust him in that. And he, he's going to do it in a way that's way better than we could have ever done it anyway. So the third key to ministry success is to prioritize the way. Prioritize the way. And when I say prioritize the way, I mean the way to walk, the way to follow the Lord. What we just talked about, what Saul did. But, but to our theme of the disciples in Jerusalem ensuring success in their ministry, we, we see that they did it as well. And the disciples prioritized the way as they walked in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost. Look at verse 31 one more time. Then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost were multiplied. So after Saul had left and, and they were confident that the flock was protected, they went about building and leading the ministry the right way. They prioritized the right things. And, and those right things led to the multiplication of the church. And, and we've seen that theme throughout these early chapters of Acts, the theme of multiplication. But the last time we saw it was back in Acts 6.1. We read that verse earlier, and it's when the Grecians were murmuring within the church. And as we talked about, and there's, there's just great parallels throughout this book, throughout the book of Acts, and great transitions, great contrasts, great parallels. Um, we see the, the Grecians causing problems in both chapter 6 and 9, but we also see that it, it didn't stop the work of the Lord either time. In fact, multiplication was taking place in both instances, and that's because the disciples didn't allow those problems to get their focus off of the main thing. They dealt with whatever needed to be dealt with. They had to take some type of action both in Acts 6, where they set up deacons to deal with the widows and, and the, the physical things of the church. And they had to take action in Acts 9, and they, and they sent Saul away to protect him and to protect the work and, and just in the providence of the Lord to, to get Saul to where he needed to be. But during all of that, they stayed focused on the main thing. And, that, and being focused on that main thing is, first of all, walking in the fear of the Lord. And the Bible has a lot to say about it. it. It's interesting. It's walking in the fear. If you look at those, those phrases, it's walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And, and, we, and we'll talk about that. But we usually you know, talk about walking in the Holy Spirit. But here they're talking about the, the first thing, the first priority they had was walking in the fear of the Lord. And the Bible has a lot to say about that. You, you see that phrase, fear of the Lord or, or fear of God, like 40 times, um, nearly 40 times in the Bible. And according to Psalm 111, verse 10, and, and Proverbs 9, 10, it's the beginning of wisdom. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. According to Proverbs 1, 7, it's the beginning of knowledge. When we were in the book of Nehemiah, when we did the, our, our book study, the book of Nehemiah, I, I, I gave you then what, what I believe to be the best biblical definition of fear, of, of, of biblical fear. But, but I know you don't remember that, um, so let me remind you. Uh, we find it in Exodus chapter 20. Verses 18 through 20, God had just given Moses the Ten Commandments. And then we read in verse 18, Exodus 20, verse 18. Then all the people saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the noise of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And the people saw it, they removed and stood afar off. And they said unto Moses, Speak thou with us and we will hear, but, but let not God speak with us lest we die. And Moses said unto the people, Fear not, for God has come to prove you. And that his fear may be before your faces that ye sin not. And I think Exodus 20.20 20 is the key to understanding a, a, a true biblical definition of the fear of the Lord. Because the children of Israel see all this, what God's doing. And they see, you know, his thunderings and, and his lightnings and the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And very naturally, it scared them. I mean, as I think it probably would, would any of us. But, but that wasn't really God's desire in the moment. Now, of course, there are absolutely reasons to be afraid of the Lord. But, but Moses says very clearly, fear not. He said, fear not. 
You see, instead of fright, the fear of the Lord is to drive us to holiness. Right? You see what Moses said there? Fear not, for God has come to prove you, and that his fear may be before your faces, that ye sin not. And that's consistent with many other verses that deal with this same topic, that deal with the fear of the Lord. Let me just give you two, just for time, by way of example. But you can find many others. Proverbs 3, 7 says, Be not wise in thine own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. They're tied together. 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So walking in the fear of the Lord means walking in a holy manner. That's what it means. It means walking in holiness. And I say that because holiness is to be the result of truly fearing the Lord. So when we fear the Lord, the result should not be fright and, and being afraid to the point that we want to remove ourselves. That's what, that's what the Israelites did. They said... The, Moses, you can talk to us, but don't let God talk to us. He's going to kill us. They, they were afraid of him. Okay, well, that, that's not what God wants. God says that he wants you to fear him to the point that it drives you to walk in holiness. And that being the true result, it's the, where it's the only appropriate response. So the way you view the Lord and the way you are in awe of him and the way you are scared of him is the only appropriate response is, I just, I just need to walk the way he says to walk. I need to walk in a holy manner. I need to walk in holiness that I sin not. And God says, be ye holy for I am holy. And so if we ever want to glorify the Lord with our life, there's, there's no way around that, right? We can't live in sin and then glorify God at the same time. It just, it just doesn't work that way. It just doesn't work that way. So listen, if you do not live your life in that way, then you do have a few things to be afraid of, at least when it comes to meeting the Lord. But that is not God's goal in his desire for us to fear him. His desire is to drive us to a certain way of living because we have a certain focus on life, because we've set our affection on things above. And so he's glorified. And when we do it, even in the midst of the unknown, even in the midst of difficult situations, there's comfort that's what we see in Acts 9.31. The Holy Ghost is going to provide comfort when we are walking in Him, in holiness. Because He is the Comforter. That's one of His titles. John 14.26, but the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto thee. And that is such an important attribute of God the Holy Spirit. Because when we are walking in, the, in holiness, in the fear of the Lord, and you feel the presence of the Lord, and you are comforted in Him, you have a peace then that passeth all understanding. That is when you are truly freed up for explosive ministry. That's when you're freed up for explosive ministry. Because that's where multiplication occurs. Because that's where God is really at work in and through you. Because you're, you're just following him and you're, you're, you're doing what he said and you're walking in holiness. Because it's your only desire in life is, is to please him and you, you've prioritized him more than you've prioritized yourself. And, and so your focus is on the main thing and it's on the mission. And when you're living that life, you're still going to go through difficulties. You're still going to go through hard situations. You're still going to go through uncomfortable times. But there's a promise of comfort because we have the comforter inside us. And when we can work through that, man, that's when explosive ministry will occur. That's when multiplication will occur. And God's at work in you and through you, and there's no better place to be as an individual, as a church, because you're fulfilling the mission it's exactly what we see here in Acts 9.31 because we're seeing the mission and the command of Acts 1.8 play out right before our eyes. Again, we're still in this transition time, but God's given us some clues as to where this thing is going. 
and what he set up back in Acts 1.8. And I know most of us in here know that verse and we know the locations where they were to be witnesses. But let's be reminded one more time. Acts 1.8, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And here we are, by the time we get to Acts 9.31, not only was there at least one church in Jerusalem, we see that there were churches all throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria. So all that was left was the uttermost. And guess where Saul's going? As Acts 22.21 that we read earlier says, And he said unto me, Depart, for I will send thee far hence unto the Gentiles. And the plan was in motion. And that's how the work of the ministry gets done successfully. When everyone involved is walking in the fear of the Lord or in holiness, and when they're encouraged to keep going and not quit and not get discouraged, and just to keep going because they feel the comfort of the Holy Ghost, and they're obedient to what God wants in their life for his own glory and for the furtherance of the mission, even if it means obeying the Lord in the way that you might not otherwise choose or fully understand in that moment. Paul got ran out of a place he loved in Jerusalem to save his own life, but it was better for him and it was better for them in the long run. It protected both of their ministries. God had a plan much bigger. He couldn't stay there. And listen, that's the life we all need to live. Just being obedient to the Lord and making his mission bigger than our own. And when we do that, we can see multiplication. God will take the ministry and increase it to his glory. But there's some keys that need to be in place for us to become, that, the, the cult, for that to become a culture of a church or a ministry. Or, or even your home, wherever it is. And first you're to prove the workers. And that includes if you're, the, if you're the father, the mother in a home, prove out yourself. That you're being honest before the Lord. We're all prone to be selfish and prideful and look to build our own kingdom. Every single one of us. We have that in us, right? From, from, from our original physical father, the devil. And, and so, you know, when we're saved, we're brought out of his family and brought into the Lord's family. But we still have that old man, that old nature in us. And we're fighting against that all the time. And, and, and part of that is just is wanting to build our own kingdom and not wanting to build the Lord's. And so we need to be careful of that. We're all prone to that. And so we, we don't just take people's word that they love God. It's great if they say it. But it's eventually going to be shown to be true or false by their fellowship and their faithfulness. And then you have to protect the work. There are wolves who want to destroy it. There's an enemy seeking whom he may devour. So we need to be on guard. We need to be on guard in our own lives for our home's sake, for our family's sake, for the church's sake. And we trust the Lord to protect us. But then we also do what God is leading us to do for the good of our family, for the good of our church body. And, and we can focus on walking in holiness so that the mission can be multiplied in our midst. And, and listen to me very carefully. Those are the keys to ministry success. Now, I'm, I'm not saying there aren't others. I'm sure there are, but those are what we see in this passage. Those are keys to ministry success. And they don't have anything to do how good of a show we put on each Sunday morning. They don't have anything to do with how professional the, the, the worship team performs. And you guys do a great job, by the way. Wonderful job. It was a beautiful worship this morning. But it's not how professional our worship team is. And, you know, it's, 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 it's not that, you know, they come out to a smoke show or anything like that. That's not success. It's not success in God's eyes. I desire more than anything that, that, man, we fill up this place and we fill up all those rooms on Wednesday night. I think there's no reason why people shouldn't come here. But that alone's not success. Just because people show up, that's not success. That's a start. They have to show up before they can get saved and before they can be discipled and before we can see fruit that remains. But that alone is not success. Success is being about the mission. And, and, and when we're about the mission, there's some things we have to have in place to stay focused on the mission. 
So I'm all for all sorts of, you know, doing cool, fun, entertaining things that, that pull people in, whether it's teenagers, whether it's adult seekers, but it's not about none of that. It's way simpler than that. That sounds exhausting. We just have to do things by this book. And what the book says, and let God work out the details. And listen, if we just do our job, God's pretty good at doing his. God's pretty good at doing his, and we can trust him to take care of the rest. So let's have every head bowed and every eye closed. And as we're closing out today, I just, I just want you to consider, the, you know, again, what the Lord said to you this morning and in the way that, that he spoke to you and, and just being willing to prove out your own self, being willing to protect the family that you have that God's given you from, from the, the dangers of this world and those that are out there trying to devour it. And the, and the same with this church. And we do that by walking in holiness. We do that by fearing the Lord. And if, if you're not doing that personally, then you're not protecting your own life. You're not protecting your family's life. That's where you got to start. So prove out yourself and do the work to protect what you need to protect, what God has given you responsibility for. And if there's anybody here this morning that, that, that doesn't even know what I'm really talking about because you've never had a time in your life where you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, and if you were to die today, you don't, you don't even know where you would go. Man, I, I want to tell you that there is hope for you and that you can meet the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior today. And if you have any questions about that, just come forward and talk to one of us down here. Come grab me, and we can take the Bible, we can open it up, and we can show you what it means to become a Christian, to become a son of God, to be saved this morning. And you, you won't hear our opinion. We'll show you what the Bible has to say, and, and, and we would love to do that. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and, and, and let's ask him to, to just continue to work on our hearts. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word, and, and thank you for all that you do in our lives personally, in our families, in our midst, and, and we ask you to continue to work, and, and that we would continue to, to move according to your word uh, for your own glory. And if there's anybody in here tonight or today, this morning, Lord, that, that doesn't know you as a Savior, I pray that your Holy Spirit is convicting them even now to take the steps to get saved today. Lord, we love you. We thank you for all you do. In Jesus' name, amen.